Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be putting together two words that aren't usually found together in the same sentence. Singapore and Islam. And we're going to be learning just how extraordinarily rich and sometimes strange the history of Islam in Singapore has been over the last several centuries. Today, Singapore is a city-state of around 5.5 million people. Of those 5.5 million people, around 15%, something like 750,000, are Muslim. This doesn't really seem a particularly large population, though, particularly compared to the much larger population of Buddhists, or indeed the larger population, around 75% of the population of today's Singapore, of people of Chinese heritage. And yet, nonetheless, even though we are looking at this minority of what is, to begin with, a small place in the first instance, we're going to be seeing just how extraordinarily rich and linguistically, as well as ethnically and theologically diverse, Singapore Islam has been. We usually think of Singapore, of course, as being a business hub, a commercial hub, a capitalist hub in Asia. And yet, what we're actually going to be talking about today is in some ways the opposite, but in some ways a story that is deeply entwined with the story of capitalism and business and commerce in Singapore, across Asia, and indeed across the Indian Ocean world. We'll be looking about the history of Singapore more in a westerly direction towards what's now Malaysia and Indonesia, to India and indeed Arabia, rather than that northerly trajectory, trajectory of Singapore's history towards China. I'll be learning how, even before the famous textbook founding of Singapore by the British official Sir Stamford Raffles in 1819, the port there was already part of a network of Indian Ocean trade and settlement that brought in Malay Muslims from Southeast Asia. But in the 19th century, in the colonial period, on the back of the steamships and business networks that made Singapore the booming financial center that it is today, there are a whole series of other migrations. A wealthy Arab businessman from Arabia, or indeed across the Arab diaspora, in the Indian Ocean, but as well as Tamil and Malay Muslims who came to carry sacks in the dockyards, or indeed moved as religious teachers, or indeed miracle workers to teach and help the other migrants to this Indian Ocean cosmopolis, as it very much became in the 19th century. Joining me and indeed leading me in this exploration of Singapore Islam is Terence Avere.
Karen is Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies at Harvard Divinity School. And he's the author of Miracles and Material Life, Rice or Traps and Guns in Islamic Malaya, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020 and went on to win the Harry J. Bender Prize of Southeast Asian Studies from the Association of Asian Studies. So today we're going to be talking about the city, the city-state of Singapore and its its history, or more specifically, its Muslim history over the last couple of hundred years. But of course, most of us, perhaps all of us really, kind of think of Singapore as being primarily, maybe even solely, a, a business city, a city of banks and finance and trade, and not really as being a religious centre, still less perhaps as being a Muslim religious centre. So today we're going to be exploring that, uh, perhaps that kind of paradoxical uh, putting together of two words together, Singapore Islam. And joining me today is uh, Professor Terran Sever. So uh, Terran, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Nihal. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And it's a real privilege as well, because this is such a unique niche subject. And uh, I think you're the only scholar I know who's uh, really working on this in detail. So perhaps to lay out the the landscape for us, uh, Terran, and to sort of to start us off, can you give us some idea of how, when, and perhaps also why Muslims came to settle in Singapore in the first place? Thanks, Nahal. It's an honor and privilege for me to be here and to speak about my work. Thank you. And uh, well, that that's a difficult one. I mean, for the matter, I mean, we we you know Singapore's always assumed to be a very very modern city in the total sense of 1921st century city, as you said. The the image we get is very a very contemporary image, but 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 we we do know that that thanks to archaeological remains, thanks to a trail of textual uh, textual materials that we inherited. I mean, that that a kind of uh, a, a thriving port city existed from the end of the 13th through the 14th centuries, with settlement continuing up to the 16th centuries. I mean, for that matter, I mean, uh, you have uh, archaeological excavations from this from this the site of a figure venerated in Singapore as a Sufi master called Iskandar Shah on a hill in Singapore, and the remains date back and provide us evidence of a settlement that, that, that was thriving in the late 14th century. So this, this is a long history of Singapore. The, 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 the difficulty that arises is, of course, uh, 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 and I'm, I'm sorry if I can't answer the question you asked, <laughs> then the difficulty arises about what, what, the, what the nature of the population was and how many Muslims were in Singapore at that moment of time. I think what can help us in this regard, for that matter, to kind of get an understanding of the social composition of, of that world and perhaps the, the evolving religious com uh, nature of that world is if we look through some Malay textual materials that we've inherited from the early modern period. I mean, one would be the, the popular genealogy of kings that, that was, was due to the work of the Scottish philologist John Layden uh, retitled as the Sajara Malayu or the History of Malays. The earliest version that we, we have at hand is a 1612 version of this text. And I mean, in that, we get a number of references to, to Singapore or, or Singapura and uh, the evolution of a, of a city-state, Tamasip, to Singapura. 
And in there, we get an image of the descendants of Iskandar Zulkarnain or Alexander the Great, and how his descendants were 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 very were were integral in becoming kings in parts of the Malay world, and for that matter, becoming, and for that matter, one of his descendants founded Singapore, and you know, a lineage of kings of Singapore is traced to that. The 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 last king that's mentioned there, who who in that text, who actually escapes Singapore, uh, due to due to a due to a treachery. And uh, sorry, I'm not going to dwell too much because if I start, I will just go on into this. But it's it's uh is 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 a figure according to the Sejarah Melayu who founds the kingdom of Malacca, Iskandar Shah. Now the whether the grave that I spoke about in Singapore is the grave of that same Iskandar Shah is something that continues to be debated. Now my my work, as you rightly pointed out, is largely about the book that I am working on. It's about the 19th, 20th century Singapore and Singapore Islam. Now and and I I started by evoking this image of these graves and Iskandar Shah and. Partly because one of the things that I'm very excited about is how uh, from the 19th century period, we have a series of uh, publications, textual traditions that emerge on these figures. So we have Tamil and Malay poems for that matter being produced, uh, uh, devotional literature on scenes, including Iskandar Shah that I mentioned, uh, who... Now, but on the other hand, we have communities from the 19th century onwards, Muslim communities in Singapore that have continually remembered the histories of Muslim settlement, the earliest earliest settlers of Singapore. And one of the things that I am I am hoping to do in this project is to do something, some justice to these oral traditions and these oral historical traditions and the textual traditions that have been produced since the 19th century, but often been forgotten in the historiography of city-states like Singapore. Now, but but I think I can answer your question better if we speak about the 19th century period and when, who who were the settlers and who were the Muslims in Singapore? Now, especially in it, what we have by 1819, and this is something that's, that so many history textbooks of Singapore begin with, is, is the the establishment of Bridgeport in Singapore. And I mean, there's a there's, there's much ink has been spilled on the, the political history of this period. But what we have at this moment is that uh, we, that older commercial centers uh, of the Malay-Indonesian archipelago are declining. Uh, merchants are shifting their operations to Singapore. Regional trading networks are moving to Singapore at this moment of time in the early 19th century. And this is also the moment of time that that uh, that all kinds of figures now we're finding merchants, merchant communities moving to Singapore. Now beyond that, I mean, it's also important to acknowledge that the laborers that are moving to Singapore in the industries at this moment of time, the royals uh, it, from disenfranchised courts, right now, political exiles from across the Malay Indonesian archipelago are moving to Singapore, and in some of the figures that I spend quite a lot of attention in this text, saints, Sufi masters, religious scholars convicted persons, uh, missionaries, even revolutionaries are moving to Singapore. And and this this is uh and just to to pull out numbers that have been tabulated not by me, by 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 scholars who have painstakingly done so by by 1901, what we have by all these movements is that that the by 1901 in Singapore we have close to, I mean we have 23,000 more than 23,000 Peninsula Malay Muslims who are moving to Singapore. 
we have more than 12,000 Muslims from various parts of the Malay Indonesian archipelago from Aceh down to part of Southern Philippines moving to Singapore. We have approximately 1,000 Arabs and these are the numbers that are available in Singapore. We have, we have hundreds and I mean, I think the numbers vary in terms of the later hundreds, closer to about 600 or 700 Jawi Pranakans based in Singapore. And that the last community is a, is a Creole community of Jawi Pranakans that's believe, uh, predominantly believed to be uh, uh, Creole Muslims were who uh, the offspring of intermarriages between South Indian Muslims and Malay Muslims. And of course, I mean that 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 I mean there have been Jawi Pranakans who also had were 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 offsprings of uh, South Indian, Malay, Arab marriages, etc. So we, there is a, a population growing then. Sorry, I just probably wavered, but I should just point out that, and, and your your question, what they were doing there, and then please tell me if I'm talking too much. But, no, but, but I mean, this is right. Huh? It, it, what, what, what drew them there? So as I mentioned, uh, merchant communities, I mentioned that regional trading networks were, were, were moving to Singapore at this moment of time in the early 19th century. What we have evidence of very clearly is the prominence of, of Arab Muslim, or, or, or to be more precise, Creole Arab Muslim communities, I mean, for that matter. And as some scholars remind us, it's important to point out the Creole Arab nature of this community. Now, in, in Singapore, within decades of moving there, the Arab, these Creole Arab Muslims would dominate the real industry, real estate industry there. Now, this is also, it's in, I mean, amongst the mercantile communities, we have a Tamil Muslim or, Chu, or called Chulia community that's there. And I think just walking around parts of downtown Singapore is a strong reminder by looking at the remaining in real institutions there of the prominence of the Tamil Muslim or Chulia community there. Now, as I, I said, I mean, often neglected in these histories is the working class populations, the laborers from across the Malay Indonesian archipelago that were going to the, the thriving port city of Singapore in the early 19th century. Now, also across the Indian Ocean world, as you know much better than me, was that, that we have the decline of industries, including the handloom industry in South India and Tamil Nadu at this moment by the by the late 19th century. This also, I mean, it draws laboring populations to ports like Singapore. And indeed, what 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 we have inherited from this period of time with the movements of these populations is some devotional literature that captures the voices of these in these migrants to Singapore. Of course, we have, as I mentioned, political exiles, we have records of horse carriage riders, soldiers, watchmen, tobacco, tobacco and opium sellers and smugglers, weavers, dock, dock workers. I mean, these are I mean, it's it's this is a story of Singapore that's really Singapore Islam that really has to be told to all these voices. I think, and I I hope I can adequately do it. But uh, but but very very quickly, if I just was to add two more things in terms of historical context, I think uh, as I was speaking, uh, your your question was also asking much more in terms of. Uh, but by the mid nineteenth century, if we we Singapore also becomes a a major port where Muslim pilgrims from the surrounding region, for that matter, uh, were were actually at times based for months, waiting for your onward journeys to Jeddah, for that matter, to go for the for the Hajj. But but what was important also to note was that 
it wasn't just a node of travel to Hajj, it also became a base for loans and bondage, labor bondage to attain funds for such journeys. So, I mean, there was a there was an aspect of the Muslim population here that, that was there too. Now, also, there's much more, there's so much going on in this period from 1920th century. By 1825, Singapore becomes a penal colony, the first batch of convicted Indians uh, transferred from Bangkulu to Singapore. And, you know, and I think I think one of the things I try to to tell in this tale in this book also is the story of co convicted Muslims who are commemorated as and commemorated uh, and convicted non-Muslims who are commemorated as Islamic saints. Now uh, there are soldiers, sepoys, revolutionaries, revolutionary printers passing through Singapore in the twentieth, the late nineteen, early twentieth century. There is also and one of the things I probably will hold for later in the conversation is by the 20th century, Singapore also becomes a hub of missionary, Muslim missionary networks and activities. And I think this is, I, I hope I was doing justice to your question by by just uh, putting all this, but there's much more to speak about Singapore Islam and what drew Muslims there and settlers, but I hope this helped. <laughs> well, Taryn, I mean, that was you know, just such an extraordinary panoply of... Uh... Of of so many peoples that that have that you you've, you've told us have, have come to Singapore. I mean, and I, I think what you've very effectively done for us as well is you've reoriented, or perhaps I should say, sort of reoccidented how we might think about Singapore as perhaps not from. Um, I mean, now the population is is seventy five percent people of kind of Chinese ancestry, but you've almost kind of shifted us westward into the Indian Ocean world, into the world of of people from the Malay and Indonesian uh, peninsula and, 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 and island islands and across, of course, to, to India, particularly to the Tamil coasts of southeastern India and beyond that to these Arabs who were coming over centuries from particularly Hadramaut to what's now Yemen, the coastal part of Yemen. And, and as you mentioned, these are often, whether Indian or Arab, these are Creole communities that are perhaps in many cases, male merchants or workers who have intermarried with local women from many communities over the centuries, but have kept their sense of their ancestry as being perhaps Julia Tamil Muslims or Hadrami Arab Muslims from the sort of patrilineal sense of their ancestry and, and identity through the male line. And that Creole term that you've used, of course, is often used and was I guess was originally invented to refer to to languages so we get in all these different languages that are coming together as well and perhaps not what we would just think of as people who have been to Singapore um, themselves might think of Singapore as being English speaking and perhaps speaking sort of some of sort of Chinese dialects Hokkien for example as well as Malay uh, so Malay is a really important language that has come up that you've mentioned um, and Malay is sort of the spoken language that emerges of the, among the many languages of the Malay Indonesian world. And Malay, as you sort of hinted for us, becomes a sort of the literary written language, isn't it? Sort of in the this earlier period, and then has these uh, sort of, as we might say, early modern fifteenth century onwards kind of texts like the one you mentioned. Then this Shajara Malayu, this kind of again a kind of a lineage, I guess, the Shajara, literally, I suppose, this is on it from the Arabic, the kind of the uh, the what's what we call it the kind of ancestral tree or something of of the lineage in this case of the Malay kings. So you've given this really sense this rich world then of kings 
and workers, of exiled princes and convicts and laborers, and the businessmen, uh, including, I guess, the Arab and Indian, as well as Chinese businessmen, who would kind of lay the foundations of what we would think of as today, then where I began, of Singapore as this, this business city. So you've given us so much, as I said, wow. So we've got this sort of, you know, kind of sense then of the many different Muslims who perhaps in a way do actually in some in some measure at least make Singapore a kind of melting pot because you've you've hinted of the Creole nature linguistically, uh, I suppose kind of ethnically with the kind of you know, kind of Creole Arabs and and and, and Tamils and the other Peranakan, these kind of Creole communities involve Chinese as well in this sort of in uh, in uh, in what's now Malaysia and the Malay Peninsula. So let's turn then, I suppose, from the actual peoples more towards the the religiosity, the 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 type of Islam or Islams then that flourished in in Singapore. So let me ask you then, what type or well, what types of Islam did these various migrants? bring with them to Singapore and perhaps what kind of practices, institutions, and indeed religious authorities, leaders, and perhaps texts or important texts, uh, text printers maybe, even magazines or whatever else, subsequently developed there, perhaps in the 19th century, after you mentioned this key book and key date in the textbooks then of Singapore being founded, 1819, Stanford Raffles and and then, you know, this uh, imperial world that, that Singapore enters then in the 19th century. Thank you, Nana. Thank you for the question. And, and thank you for your response, and which really helped clarify a few things. I, and I, I just, um, I mean, this, that's, uh, I hope I answer your question appropriately in terms of the types of Islam in Singapore. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I mean, if I was to think about the types of Islam in the period that I'm working on 19th, 20th century, and even to the present, I think it's just, uh, I mean, but to start with, it's difficult to even think of Singapore Islam as being either customary or reformist. And it's, it's there are multiple traditions of Islam at play in, in, in throughout these historical periods that I've been looking at. I mean, and, and so if I'm just looking in terms of the institutional development of Islam and the type of Islam that was tied up to that, I think what we we find from Singapore from the 19th century onwards is firstly, uh, members of the ulama, masters that are associated with trans-regional networks, being very, and trans-regional networks, as you mentioned, also connected to South Yemen, the Hadramut, West Western India, South India, the parts of the Malay-Indonesian archipelago, and when we say ulama, we mean, let's say, the, the men of learning, isn't it? The sort of, you know, the, the men. authorities. Exactly, exactly. And thank you for clarifying that. And what we, we what we have is institutions that are developing around these these figures, be they members of the ulama, be they Sufi masters from the late 19th century onwards. And I think what we have, let me, an example would be, for that matter, the development of multiple uh Sufi networks or institutions in Singapore, be they the Baalwi network in Singapore. And what we see is, is how, for that matter, just a study of a, of a certain Sufi network, for that matter, and members of the ulama or Sufi masters and or Sufi masters associated with it and devotees associated with the network. And I mean, this would open us up into a study of merchants, etc., who are funding such networks. Would really, and the mosque, 
and other shrines they develop can can help us understand the prominence and the authority of these figures in the religious life of the 19th and 20th century community. I think one of the other things that that, that struck me as I was studying uh, Singapore Islam was also how and, and this this is a variety of sources that are available in the study of Islam in like graves, funeral, uh, funeral architecture, cemeteries, shrines, Sufi shrines, publications. They often lead us, uh, give an impression that, that this the type of Islam that, that was in Singapore in the 1920th century, even present, was also one that was centered. And I, I mentioned Balwi Tariqa, that's very much a Tariqa based on the lineage of, of the Prophet. And and this, there was a type of Singapore Islam that was centered on the descendants of the prophets, be they, be they the male descendants of the prophet Sayyid or the female descendants of the prophet Sayyidas in Singapore. Now, I think the materials that have been available from the 19th century onwards in Malay, Tamil and Arabic on, on these figures who were taken as saints, mediators of spiritual material life. Now, but these Sayyids and Sayyidas, for that matter, were central to devotional communities that were multi multilingual at times and multicultural at times in Singapore. So, I mean, one, one type of Islam will be looking at this. And then and the reason why I bring this up is just a study of communities like that and networks like that would would allow us to understand for the matter, look at the, the, the most, for the matter, the mercantile communities who become patrons of, of some of these scenes or members of the Lama who, are, who would arrived in Singapore and would live and be buried in Singapore. Now, but nevertheless, I mean, there. I mean, as I perhaps mentioned earlier, I mean, looking at contemporary Singapore itself, and looking at institutions that still survive for that matter. I mean, we could, we would, we will find South Indian mosque shrines, these and and in at times, I mean, mosque and shrines could be in the same compound as mosque, and that's something we find in Singapore also. Now, what, now one very popular shrine that we find in Singapore that. Uh, that's uh, also been partly converted into a museum in Singapore at the moment, is the Nagur Darga, which is a replica shrine of the, the saint of Nagur in South India, in Tamil Nadu. And I mean, the devotees of the saint Shah Alamid, whenever they traveled across the Indian Ocean world, they built replica tombs and this, the saints Barkat and or Baraka, charismatic religious authority, could be evoked to these replica tombs. I mean, these tombs were found in Aceh, Rangoon, Singapore, and built by the 1820s by these traveling communities. Now, this was definitely a very prominent part of the type of Islam. Now, what, what's important to note here is that today, one of these shrines stands, but, but if we go through some earlier records of the 19th century, we find multiple replica tombs of Shah Hamid in Singapore itself, let alone other port cities of this part of the world. Now, uh, there's, there's, there's so much to speak about other types of Islam that in the sense of in, we're speaking about, I mean, about, I mean, there are by the by the turn of the century, by the 20th century, there are there's a there's a Jamaat Ahmadiyya based in Singapore. But but even a century before that, we I mean we I'm sorry, at least at least about eight decades before that, we have Shia communities, including the Daudi Bora community, for that matter, based in Singapore. Now, what I by all these communities that I have evoked, there is a kind of idea of religious authority being centered on the mediation of spiritual and material life. Now, this is a type of Islam that day from various contexts is based on the charismatic religious authority or the guidance of certain figures. Now, in a in a city that that for for laboring populations 
was struck by economic disparity, poor medical infrastructure, the role of mediators was very central to the life. Now, but, but I mean, the reason I often start with this is because this is a, a story of Singapore Islam in terms of its shrines, graveyards, these mediators that's often being forgotten. But there are other types of Islam. And I think your question was really pointing me towards point speaking about all various types of Islam and when you pointed out your publications. And I think one of the things that we can, and there's so much to speak about it, so I hope I do justice. But by 1906, for that matter, we have a publication, Al-Imam, that's produced by a student of Muhammad Abdul in Singapore, a Jawi, a Jawi publication, Al-Imam. Now, Al-Imam... Sorry, Tom, just to interrupt you, I mean, Muhammad Abdul is... We've had a podcast on him. I mean, he he's the, you know, I suppose the the most famous Muslim reformer, if you're going to name one, he's the Egyptian official sheikh, isn't he, under the official Muslim under the British, but he's the most important Muslim reformer probably anywhere in the world, but probably Egypt. Exactly. Oh, his influence is reaching. Exactly. And, and it, this, this, this uh, publication that emerges in Singapore is very much modelled upon the teacher Muhammad Abdul's own publication that, that has drawn much more attention in Islamic studies. And I think it's it's a short-lived publication from 1906 to 1908, but it captures a certain type of Islam where it's it's often been represented as anti, anti-Sufi. But indeed, if you go through the pages of the Al-Imam, it's propagating, a, I, I, I would argue, a propagating a reformist Sufi message. You know, it's about distinguishing Islam and Sufism from uh, what is being portrayed as a crude style of Sufism, of superstitions, customs, shrine variation, pomp. And and this, this the just the mention of Al-Imam itself opens us up to a various, there are many other reformist journals, Malay reformist journals that follow the Al-Imam that come up this moment of time. Not just Malay, but but Islamic publications in other voices that come up now. But as we turn, this is, I mean, this. There are various other religious institutions that are based in Singapore. They are very much reformist, and and so there's there's a variety of the type of Islam that I do want to point out. Now there is another story of of type of Islam that I like to tell in the book of of a kind of uh, beyond this world of saints, mediators, miracle workers that I I I I'm looking forward to talk more about. And uh, and beyond the the world of reformists that I'm also looking for to talk about about in this podcast, but there's also a story of uh, revolutionary Islam that I I I try to talk about in this book where we have Muslim revolutionaries who are who are who are basically uh, traveling through these networks connecting parts of North and South India to parts of Southeast Asia, parts of East Asia like Japan and America, and indeed like uh, one of and and one of the things that's very central to these this this world this 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 networks is this propagation of Islam as 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 a kind of anti-colonial ideology for the globe and there are reworkings of Islam articulations of Islam that are going on here very clearly. So I, I hope that answered your question and please tell me if it didn't do justice to it. Oh yeah, no, it very much did again and and, and similarly gave us this sort of this real the rich tapestry of, of Singapore Islam you in earlier on we were talking about Malay and I sort of flagged up Malayas Malay is becoming this sort of a, a literary lingua franca isn't it of much of the Southeast Asian uh, uh, Muslim regions but you also brought us in Tamil and you know Tamil language a very ancient literary language of, of South India but also an important Muslim language as well, that rather like Malay is written also in an Arabic script version of that, that there's an Arabic script version of, of, of Malay, isn't there? We call Jawi in an Arabic script 
version of Tamil that we call Arwi. So these are, you know, kind of very much Muslim Tamil and, you know, kind of Muslim Malay literatures. And of course, you also mentioned Arabic itself as being a language of, of the learned, the ulama, whether they're of Malay, Arab, or indeed Tamil ancestry or whatever else. Um, and these Arabic publications that, that, uh, that uh, as well as in, in, in Tamil and Malay publications that, that uh, come out of Singapore. And you've also given us this sense of these institutions as well, of various kinds. Of course, the mosques and madrasas, but also many shrines, and particularly just to flag up that, that one you referred to, the, the shrine of Shah al-Hamid, the, the great Sufi shrine of Tamil Nadu in South India at, at Nagor, a port city that's associated with these Tamil merchants going back perhaps, uh, well, the shrine, not so much the shrine, but perhaps the merchants going back a thousand years or something. And these replica shrines are built throughout then, as you mentioned, in Rangoon, these other port cities all the way down to 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 Singapore. So giving us this sense then, as you mentioned, a network then of, of peoples, of trade, of religious lineages, I suppose, like the the, the Ba'alawi, this originally Hadrami Yemeni Arab lineage that moves out across the Indian Ocean through these networks of people, of places, of institutions, and of buildings. Not least then these, these shrines and graves, or indeed replica graves in the case of the multiple, so I suppose replica graves of, of Shah al-Hamid. But there's a tendency, isn't there, I think, to, to think of not least among Muslims themselves, as, as well as among many scholars of Islam, there's a tendency to think of shrines and saint veneration and the miracles, and as you mentioned, the barakat, the, the blessing power um, associated with, with these shrines and miracles. There's a tendency to think of those belonging to some kind of folk or popular Islam, or indeed in theological terms, a kind of corrupt, uh, superstitious uh, jahili kind of ignorant uh, Islam that, that didn't interact with literate and textual and perhaps indeed in in, in, in theological terms with, with true or, or Quranic or, 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 or Sunni religiosity. But Singapore also became a very important Muslim printing hub in the 19th and early 20th century, not least in Arabic, as you mentioned with even Muhammad Abdu, the, the greatest of the Muslim reformers. So can you give us a sense, Taryn, of how these spheres then of learned texts and popular practices, how these two spheres, even if we should think of them as two spheres, how they interacted? Thanks, Nylon. Uh, so I, I think like um, to do justice to your great question, I, I mean, if I could uh, just um, kind of give an overview in terms of printing in Singapore, and yeah, I hope right. that answer your question. Is that I think one of the great things that we have inherited, I mean, I remember as a grad student reading William Roth's short article on the late 19th century print, Singapore becoming a hub of Islamic printing. And I think that really stuck in my mind for all these years. And I think it's, I think in, uh, in, in you, you have worked on this and very, very uh, illuminatingly in terms of how for that matter, we even printing in Singapore, what we find by the 19th century is largely developing by, by printing presses and uh, skilled pressmen who are, who are being introduced to the, the interaction of Muslim, uh, sorry, Christian missionaries and, and Muslim scholars. I mean, for that matter, the earliest printed book in Singapore is uh, the Hikayat Abdullah by Abdullah bin Abdul Qadir, more pop more popularly known as Munshi Abdullah in Singapore, 
and i think by this is by i mean muslim print uh, muslim printing really takes off in the following decades by 1876 we are the first malay malay newspaper called the jawi peranakan i mean uh, as i mentioned within within decades of that uh, you have uh, general uh, publications like al imam produced by muhammad abdul student in and in in and there's so i have without throwing in too many names i mean after al imam the number of malay publications that that even though not claiming to be avowedly religious would be very concerned about muslim religious life in singapore and islam and these would be rutasan layu nadachalam bagam layu saudara wartam layu they just keep over the following decades that this is and there is a trail of publications that we are fortunate to have that we can actually look at at least copies of them now but but what 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 also contributes to the publication life of singapore i think from especially in from the 1910s to the 1940s and this is the period one of the periods i look at in the book is this development of anjumans for the matter of islamic voluntary associations or missionary societies now to if i could just give an example of one missionary society i mean there are a whole bunch of anjumans that are developing at this moment of time um is is after the visit of a very prominent global islamic scholar member of the amity community khwaja kamaluddin in singapore uh, an organization by 1921 is set up anjumani islam now quite, what's quite striking about this is that anjumani islam would would in within years clarify that it's not a amity organization but it's very it was very close to working with amity scholars like khwaja kamaluddin like yeah i was just going to sort of chip in that the ahmadi are sort of a a, a, a new sort of I mean, some would call them a messianic group. There was a messianic side of them, and a sort of a, a sort of more normative side of this new organisation that comes out of North India, isn't it, in the late nineteenth century, and then finds its way to to London, Kamaladeen, and to Singapore. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Sorry, I should have pointed that out again. And very much a movement is associated with its messianic founder Mirza Ghulam Ahmed from Kadian. And uh, and and what 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 we see in organisations, we and I I mean, of course, we have. We have the Ahmadi Jamaat really based in in parts of this world by the nineteen twenties and very prominently publishing in multiple languages, if not journals, other kinds of materials. Now, but but we have an organisation like Jamaat Islam, as I mentioned. What what is producing is journals, and beyond that, partaking in a series of scholarly conversations, producing tracts that are circulated at this moment of time. Now, I I probably can't get into the content of all the materials here. But what what is a very striking attack in a lot of these materials on what is believed to be antiquated forms of jur- Islamic jurisprudence, Islamic authority, also attack on social educational systems in Muslim societies across the globe, and not just in Southeast Asia. Indeed, one of the figures who was prominent in this society, the Anjumani Islam, in Singapore, set up in the nineteen twenties, would have been called Kudrat Shah. Who would would not only be central to editing the magazine, contributing to magazines or publications in Singapore, would be traveling across the South and Southeast Asia. Indeed, be based writing about his trips to Lahore, writing about his trips to other parts of South Asia, returning to Singapore, giving weekly and at times bi-weekly lectures to pop to populations who were not reading the publications. You know, and so there was this fear that that publications there was. That these publications were coming up in, and but but to go back to 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 where the question started was one of the things was that while as I mentioned, a number of journals like Al Imam and a number of the Malay journals were calling for a reform 
of Sufism. Now, the printing presses, as Nal, your work reminds us very strongly, was was a sphere where Sufis and charisma was being entrenched. And indeed, what we find is that a whole bunch of Malay and early Tamil publications that we find from this 19th century onwards are very much about re-entrenching the charismatic authority of the scenes of Singapore. Now, indeed, uh, since you, you you mentioned Tamil, I should point out that, that what is believed to be the first lithograph Tamil text in Singapore indeed is a collection of devotional poems devoted to a series of scenes not only buried in Singapore, but across the Indian Ocean world. I mean, listed from Shah Lamid down to three saints buried in Singapore. Now, what's quite striking about this text, and therefore I, I, I mentioned it, is that as you reminded us about the complexity of languages, is that there are there is there I mean there are predominantly Tamil poems, but there's actually a Malay poem written for the saint that I mentioned at the start of the interview, Iskandar Shah, but written in the Tamil script. So a Malay poem in the Tamil script, mm -hmm. and this is this is uh, this is something that's that's rare, but continues to be produced. Indeed, there are the recent hagiographies of saints in Singapore, Malacca, and Pinang, and Penang, uh, Pulau Pinang, that have been produced in Tamil, uh, sorry, in Malay, but written in the Tamil script for that matter. And this, so that that's something that that makes the story of Singapore Islam for me much more exciting and fascinating. But but another aspect of this is that we hagiographies and stories of saints have continued to be published and since the 19th century to the present. I mean, indeed, there are multiple hagiographies that have been edited, revised and produced into new compendia form of many of the saints of Singapore. And this is something that uh, I, I hope I, I might be able to point out later and something that my project is really trying to bring more attention to that the story of Singapore Islam is continuously being told and revised and edited and retold. But but going back to your question in terms of the world of Karishma and the world of uh, what, what is often declared as folk Islam or the world of miracle workers and, and reformists and whether these worlds can be easily demarcated. I think I, if, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll just point out the, the example of one figure who's very central to the publication world of Singapore. And this is a figure who, who in, 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 in actually my opinion, is probably one of the, the big Islamic celebrities of the group that we, we often don't speak about too much in Islamic studies, Mawlana Abdul Ali Siddiqui. And Nile, you, you have mentioned him in your work. And it's, it's, we're often struggling to find mentions of him. Now, this is a figure who is the protege of the, the Barelvi master, uh, Ahmed Raza Khan. He spends decades traveling across the globe. And I, I'm just across all the continents. And I mean, we're, we're finding him on the foundation stones of mosques across the globe. But what, what's quite striking is that he, he in Singapore, he, he becomes central to a devotional community that starts publishing quite actively and actually drawing upon contributors from all across the globe in their publications. And what we see in this figure, Abdul Alim Siddiqui, is this charismatic Sufi master who is initiating, who is performing miracles, whose miracles are being celebrated in literature on one hand. But on the other hand, he's... He's participating in debates with Western scholars about the nature of Islam. On the other hand, he's he's his organ his 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 followers in Singapore are very very clearly defining themselves as a propaganda unit 
in using the term propaganda to propagate Islamic propaganda across the globe. Now, there is a whole notion of reformist Islam that's been propagated by this community following a charismatic Sufi master. Now, in the publications, Islam is being projected as the true system for the globe. And that there is idea of reforming Sufism and reforming Islam, bringing it back to a certain idea of articulating what is true Islam. Islam is being propagated as, as true socialism for the globe, true internationalism for the globe. Now, beyond that, Molana Siddiqui, a miracle worker, is openly speaking in terms in some of his speeches and in Singapore and way beyond about how Islam is not a, a sect, is not a Christianized or secular religion. He's attacking secularism, speaking of Islam almost in a no, not almost, but very clearly in a socio-political sense of Islam being a system for the globe. Now, beyond this, what is also important, I perhaps mentioned earlier that we had uh, Ahmadi scholars like Khwaja Kamaluddin in Singapore in the 1920s. We had Ahmadi publication, publications in Singapore. We had Ahmadi communities. Uh, we also had Anjumane Islam that was very, very closely allied with Ahmadi scholars. Now, what we find with Molana, Molana Abdul Alim Siddiqui, this charismatic religious master who is propagating idea of Islam for the globe, is that he also starts vehemently attacking the Ahmadi movement. And, you know, he's drawing upon scholars. His his journals are publishing the works of other Sufi, sorry, other Islamic reformers, including Muhammad Iqbal in Singapore, propagating this idea and this anti-Amadia message in Singapore. Now, there's so there's there's this, and and the reason I like to bring up Molana Siddiqui is that I always find it striking that he's been forgotten in South Asia in South Asian studies of Islam, but his son, for that matter, Shah Ahmed Nurani, the prominent Brailwee scholar of Pakistan, who is someone that we, we all reckon with in any conversation about Brailwee Islam in Pakistan, but we often forget that perhaps the roots of, of some of that, that anti-Amadi agitation or that idea of Islam as a system might have originated some in, in a conversation with Singapore Islam that he might have inherited from his father if I'm not stretching it. But, yeah. Well, I think that's really helpful, Taran that you've given us there this sense that this melting pot, as I perhaps called it in hackneyed terms of Singaporeism, isn't always a sort of a, a happy blend. There are, as there are throughout the Muslim world in the 20th, 21st century, not least through print and indeed more recent sort of forms of digital media, there are divisions, there are polemics, there are verbal, and indeed, of course, uh, thankfully not in Singapore, but of course, there are, you know, kind of physical attacks, you know, on, on not least between Sufis and anti-Sufis. But you've given us this, this sort of really important sense that with a figure like Siddiqui, you were talking about, this is a, a learned, highly learned uh, representative of a reformist Sufi Islam, a modern form of Sufi Islam. He's a miracle worker, but he can hold his own with anybody, whether in Arabic or in Urdu, and indeed in English. I mean, he mentioned his many debates. One that comes to mind that I recall was that when he's sailing all around the world, as you mentioned, to many different places, I think it was in Mombasa, in what's now Kenya, he he runs into George Bernard Shaw, the sort of probably the most famous uh, uh, Irish, but sort of Anglophone, sort of, you know, kind of intellectual heavyweight of the period and has a, a debate 
uh, a really sort of you know fierce debate in some ways, a serious debate with, with Bernard Shaw. And indeed that gets printed. So English is becoming one of these languages of, of Singapore Islam too. The other thing that made me think of the way you're describing all of the places of Singapore Islam is that in contrast to nowadays, that if any of us have been to Singapore, unless perhaps we've got the the bus over from uh, from perhaps Malacca in uh, in Malaysia, people arrive in Singapore by by plane after a long journey and complain about it and da da da. But of course, the period that we're talking about here that you're talking about is a period where everyone is going to and from Singapore by boat, and those boats are stopping off at all these other ports of call that are part then of this network that you've talked about of shrines of journeys of conversations, whether in Mombasa or in Bombay or in in Rangoon or the other cities that have come up in, in our conversation. So in a sense, this is a boat Islam that Singapore is part of really too. But you've given us a sense of, of uh, Malon Abdul Alim Siddiqui, but is there another particular person or for that matter, a practice or a text that you think encapsulates the, the qualities of what you've called in, I think what's now, I can fairly say you're very much much anticipated book, <laughs> what you what you've called Singapore Islam. Great, thank you, Nathan. Just just to just to follow up from your point earlier, I'm glad you pointed out that debate with George Bernard Shaw because it was it was published in Singapore also in ah, a number right. of the Islamic publications and translated and circulated through tracks. And so it 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 was it was a big one in terms of 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 uh, Molan Siddiqui convincing George Bernard Shaw of Muhammad being the the savior of modernity right. of all humanity. And it's but sorry, I, I really went from your question. And and if I if I could um answer your question in terms of picking a person, perhaps, I mean um one of the figures that 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 uh, probably excites me, excited me the most as I started this project was a figure who was was uh notoriously called in the colonial press by the 18, 1850s and 60s as a Robin Hood figure, or on the other hand, as as, as a times a lunatic or a madman. And I mean, he's, he's one of these figures uh, very akin to Bandemia, who, who is who's a Mazu figure. He's an ecstatic figure. You know, he's he's known to, and, and this is something that comes up in both both the colonial press, the English press, and on the other hand, a lot of the hagiographic accounts known to spend his nights in cemeteries in the daytime, walking around semi-naked, ecstatic, at times puffing on cigars, walking through Singapore streets surrounded by beggars, vagrants, children. But but on the other hand, you know, this these are these what we get from these accounts of of a figure like uh, and I'm sorry, I should name him Said No is uh, Sayyid Nuh al-Habshi, is that we, as he's roaming the streets, now these are crowded streets, you know, we get an idea of really re densely populated urban Singapore in, in the parts he's going through. He would shoplift and uh, he would extort free rides. And and because of this, he was very actively called Robin Hood. I mean, what, what he was rep represented to do would be he shoplift and he would redistribute the money amongst the his followers and the big and other beggars who were him. Now, why why would I why why he excites me so much is that one of the things that was very striking in the devotional literature that came up on Habib No, and I, I mentioned for that matter, one of the earliest little earliest is some of the earliest Islamic lithograph texts from Singapore about devotional scenes very much had poems devoted to Habib No. 
Now, he was defined on one hand as the saint who would help rehabilitate migrants coming from other parts of the globe, including from South India, weaving communities for that matter. Now, they, some of these literature is written by the 1870s in the voice of these weavers who are, who are, who are thanking this saint for, for allowing them. He's described in devotional literature richly as a figure who, who healed believers. You know, uh, you know, he would heal them from injuries. This is a city plagued by bad medical infrastructure, you know, and also like, like the Madzu Pandemia that you, you, you educated us about. You now, this is a figure who would plunge into the ocean to save merchants. He would even resurrect people from the dead at times. He would, he was would telling fortunes. But going back to your question about the, 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 the navigation to Singapore. Now, one of the things that, that was very striking would be, their business was 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 operated by junks or junk boats, as we call them, along the Singapore River in the early 19th century. And later, it's only in the turn by the course of the 19th century that we find harbors, wharfs, and bunkers and containers emerging. Now, nevertheless, what we find in this literature is how we find a figure like Said No, often mentioned as going through all these figures, be they the earlier world of boatmen or be they the new wharfs that would develop. Said No is there. Now, he's a sight to behold at these places. Now, he is described actively as a beacon for hope for travelers in the pre-steam pre, pre Indian Ocean world and also the, the mechanized but still capricious one. Now, he's there and I think this is something that, that on one hand, I think we, we really get to listen to the voices of the working class watcheries here. And this is something that scholars of Singapore like James Warden have reminded us about the importance of doing, is that you really hear, hear about crowded streets, how he's healing working class, what he's redistributing resources amongst, amongst a population plagued by class, caste, and other hierarchies. Now, what... Now, what? Why else would I? What did I find him interesting? I mean, I, I should probably also mention that that I did mention that he was often defined as a lunatic. Now, one of the things that's quite striking in the the hagiographical literature and the devotional literature about him is that he defined either as playfully dancing around the cities ecstatically, or on the other hand, he is described with this figure who's pot, uh, who's constantly understood to be by by colonial masters. As a madman, and he's put into asylums in some of the rudimentary asylums that put out. And indeed, it's in the rudimentary asylums that become sites for his, his particular miracles where he seems to be flying out of asylums, walking on water. But but let me get to <laughs> there is a method to my madness, so why I'm <laughs> speaking about him. Now, the story of Singapore Islam, my book begins in 1819. This is the year that Said No migrates from Penang to Singapore. At the port of Pulau Pinang, he was already performing miracles for Chinese Chinese merchants there. Right? And this in, is importantly, Tony, if I can interrupt, because this is the date that conventionally it's it's Sir Stamford Raffles who found Singapore, but this is a sort of a counter history of Singapore, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I'm glad you pointed that out now because I'm very well spotted because a number of these hagiographies have at times paused to remind the readers, at times, at least the 20th century hagiographies, that 1819 should not be remembered as the date of Raffles. It's the date of Said No's arrival in Singapore. Now, this is, of course, what we find in a number of these hagiographical accounts is, is even collecting Arab Arab travelers' accounts of the shrine. Now, what we 
see is that over the, the following century, this is a shrine that become that is described in devotional literature as a shrine that becomes a center of pilgrimage that rivals the prominence even of Makkah and Medina. So the importance of Singapore is very strongly put out here. Strong. Now, strikingly, I think uh, Said No captures the fact of multilingual devotional literature produced on him. There's, there's, Malay, there's an overwhelming source number of Malay hagiographies produced on him. There are Tamil poems produced on him. There are Arabic sources produced on him from the 19th and 20th century and continue to be produced on him. Miracle stories of him continue to be uh, transmitted orally and at times even written down and published. Now, but but what, what else is uh, striking here is that this is a Madzuk figure. As I started off by describing him, He's, but on the other hand, what what is uh, for me a very important note and, and, and a guide as for me, Sainu helps guide me into understanding this world of Singapore Islam is also how his hagiographies are very actively articulating a certain notion of sainthood. Now we find that that debates emerge in the hagiographies about whether he's a Tamil Said, whether he's a Malay saint, or whether he is actually a Hadrami saint. And indeed, there are Hadrami. Now he is by the twentieth century. We we see, we see very very clearly a Hadrami genealogy and a Lavi Said genealogy has been produced for Saidno. Saidno has been. It comes from Arabia, isn't it? From Yemen. From exactly Arabia. from South Yemen, and and I mean, he, and he could be, or he could be Creole, but but I, it's it's striking that that these debates are going on. And what, what's happening is that he's also being claimed within Sufi orders. So there's a claim that he's a Qadri Naqshbandi Sheikh, or there's a claim that he's a Baalwi Sheikh. And this is, this is the, I think it's at the moment, I, uh, there, there, it's, it's different hagiographies have different accounts. And what, what's quite striking here is that on one hand, he's also being, being represented as these, as on one hand, this, this acknowledgement of him being ecstatic and mazub. But he's also being rep represented as a reformist Sufi who's propagating a su certain Sufi tariqa and a, as a follow as as, as, a, as a wise region of, of of other reformist Sufi masters and from Hadramut. So there's there's a lot going on in his hagiographies that gives us so much to study about Singapore Islam. <laughs>
a small brief sense of what's been the trajectory of Singapore Islam in more recent decades? Oh, thanks, Nahal. I'll, I'll try to answer that. I mean, um, I, I hope I can, but it's, um, I think it's, it's, I think it's quite striking. I think in your question, you, I mean, we, 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 it's really uh, implied that, you know, some of the old global conversations about Arabization and Salafization are, are really, really quite simplistic at times. And I think we'll, I think, but what, what's also striking, if I could, could, could on that note, point out is that number of the 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 devotion members of devotional communities that we're working with i think on this project i i somehow started field work ages ago while i was actually even a phd student and i started collecting stuff and it's it's culminating now and and i mean there's this constant reference and fear of of sulfization or wahhabis and indeed indeed i mean it's one of the things that was quite striking about this project and painful about this project I worked on it was how some of the shrines, some of the graveyards, some of the spaces where devotional communities congregated were actually destroyed for urban redevelopment purposes. So there's a history of Singapore Islam being forgotten. In the eyes of some of the devotees, they would, they would actually refer to the attacks on their devotional communities as driven by both capitalist development and what they, they saw as Wahhabi Wahhabi influences. Now, indeed, uh, but I should point out here that that the the term Wahhabi was used as easy, or even Salafi was using easy appellation for all kinds of groups, including groups that were from had Sufi origins, including the Tablighi Jamaat and other groups that were were there. Now, but so I mean, on one hand, I mean, I think the trajectory of Singapore Islam, seeing these ruins, and listening to these these uh, some of these testimonies. Was was something that that some time ago I started thinking was was something that was was dark in a sense of Singapore is this was the history of Singapore Islam that was being forgotten. This was an institutional presence and living reminders that were being forgotten. But again, if I could go back to the example of someone like Said Nu and devotional communities, indeed, one of the devotional communities that that I was I was working with is this congregated around the shrine of this female Sufi master buried in Singapore in eighteen fifty three. Now, when her shrine was destroyed in 2010 for urban development purposes, what what struck me was how devotees continued to meet there hmm. and tell the oral histories of the saint and constantly pointed out that the saint was still there. Now, Said Nu, for that matter, strikingly, uh, uh, is passed away physically in 1866, in July 1866. Nonetheless, a few years ago, he, uh, I'm sorry, the date is tripping me, slipping me now, but a few years ago, he appeared in dreams to some devotees and led them to recover the grave of his granddaughter, whose grave was revived and built into a Sufi shrine. Now, he's not the first, this is not the first time Said Nu has led such devotional communities and he's not the first Sufi master of Singapore to do so. So what we find is that amidst this, disappearance of, of uh, visible uh, funerary architecture, we find Sufis returning and and and, and in repopulating Singapore with some of these Sufi shrines. So if I was going to end with a kind of vision of the trajectory of Singapore Islam, if we listen to some of these devotees, it's it's bright. <laughs> it's... That, that's, well, that's a sort of a hopeful note, even among perhaps the ruins or the kind of redevelopment of so many of these shrines then, Taran. And... Uh... But nonetheless, I'm sure when 
anyone who's listened to this podcast, if they ever make a journey to Singapore, they'll perhaps skip the the uh, famous Raffles Hotel and perhaps go to the Nagodaga directly instead. <laughs> yes, I, I truly hope so. Or say no shrine with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've certainly put Singapore Islam on the on the map for us, Taryn, or back on the the map is indeed where it should be. Professor Terence Surveyor, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much for having me here. Da 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 da